Was anyone in here? Hold on a minute. I recognise your faces. Weren't you all here last year? Something to do with the... No, not the occult. That was another group that came in during Easter. That was it. Ghost Hunters. Yeah. Don't know what it is with this city, but a lot of people seem to pop here during winter looking for ghosts. Or the ghostly apparitions of things that are going bump in the night. Now, personally, when something goes bump in the night, that's usually somebody mugging you down in the gut. Or the gangplank, for that matter. What's that? Oh, you were in the gangplank. See, this is the thing about this city, right? Some stories you can completely believe, like myself, being a fine, upstanding member of the community. Yes. And some stories you just cannot believe at all, whatsoever. Like the gangplank not serving watered-down beer. Yeah. So have you actually heard or seen any good ghost stuff going on in the city this year? No? Well, give it a bit of time. You're bound to bump into a couple of people that have seen something going on in the city. What's that? Do I know any good ghost stories? Nah, one or two. Not to do with the city, mind you. I mean, more to do with the home country of Scotland. Hmm? You want to hear one? Okay. Gather round the fire. Don't worry. I'll fill up your drinks. On the house. The devil he sang, the devil he played. High and fast and free. And this was ever the song he made as it was told to me. Oh, I am the king of the air and the ground, and the lord of the season's roll, and I will give you a hundred pound if you will give me your soul. The Ballad of Grey Weather The cattle market of Inverforth is, as all men know, north of the Tweed, the greatest market of the kind in the land. For days in the late autumn there is the lowing of oxen and the bleating of sheep among its high wooden pens, and in the rickety sail rings the loud clamour of auctioneers and the talk of farmers. In the open yard, where there are drovers and the butchers, a race always ungodly and law-despising. There is such a babble of cries and curses as might wake the seven sleepers. From twenty different adjacent eating houses comes the clatter of knives, where the country folk eat their dinner of beef and potatoes, with beer for sauce, and the collies grovel on the ground for stray morsels. Hither come a hundred types of men from the Highland Catherine, with a scarcer word of English and the gentleman farmer of Inverness and Ross to lowland graziers, and city tradesmen, not to speak 
of blackguards of many nationalities and more professions. It was there I first met Duncan Stewart of Clackhammerston in the Moor of Rannoch, and there I heard this story. He was an old man when I knew him, grizzled and wind-beaten, a prosperous man too, with many herds like Jacob and much pasture. He had come down from the north with Kylos, and he waited on the Englishman with whom he had trusted. He sat with me through the long day and beguiled the time with many, many stories. He had been a drover in his youth and had travelled on foot the length and breadth of Scotland, and his memory went back hale and vigorous to times which are all but now historical. This tale I heard among many others, as we sat on a pen amidst the smell of beasts and the jabber of Gaelic. When I was just turned of twenty-five, I was a young wild lad as ever was heard of. I had taken to the droving for the love of a wild life, and a wild life I led. My father's heart would be broken, long sign with my doings, and well for my mother that she was in her grave since I was six years old. I paid no heed to the ministrations of godly Mr. McDougall of the Isles who bade me turn from the error of my ways, but went on my own evil course, making cellar, for I was a brawl lad, at the work and a trusted, and knowing the inside of every public, from the pier of Cromarty to the streets of York. I was a wild drinker, caring in my cups for neither God nor man, a great hand with the cards and fond of the lasses, past all telling. It makes me shameful to this day to think on my evil life when I was twenty-five. Well, it chanced that in the back of the month of September I found myself in the city of Edinburgh with a flock of fifty sheep which I had bought as a venture from a drunken bonnet laird and was thinking of selling somewhere whilst the country. They were braw beasts, Leicester, every one of them, well-fed and duck cheap at the price I gave, so it was a light heart that I drove them out of the town by the Merkiston Road, along by the face of the Pentlands. Two or three friends came with me, all, like myself, for folly, but maybe just a little bit poorer. Indeed, I cared little for them. They were valued me only for the whisky which I gave them to drink my health and at the parting. They left me on the near side of Collington and I went on my way alone. Now, if you'll be remembering the road, you will mind that at the place called Kirk Newton, just afore the road begins to twine over the big muir, and almost at the head of the water of Leith, there is a very fine public. Indeed, it would be no lee to call it the best public between Embra and Glasgow. The good wife, Lucky Creek by name, was an old friend of mine. For many a good gill on her prandy have I bought. So what would I be doing but just turning aside for refreshment? She met me at the door, very pleased-like to see me, 
and soon I had my legs aneath a table and a basin of toddy on the board before me. And whom did I find in the same place? But my old comrade Toshy McLean from the backside of Glenlion. Toshy and I were acquaintances so old that it did not behoove us quick to be parting. For by the day was chill without, and within the fire was grand and the crack of the best. Then Toshy and I got on quarrelling about the price of Lachlan Farwa's beasts that he sold at Falkirk, and the drink having I a bad effect on my temper, I was forgiving him the lie and coming off in a great rage. It was about six o'clock in the evening and an hour to nightfall, so Miss Creek comes in to try and keep me. Lush Duncan, says she. You'll never try and win o'er the muir the nicht. It's made in ten mile to Carnwath, and there's knock atween it and this bit hops and heathery brays. But when I am roused, I will be more obstinate than ten miles, so I would be going, though I knew not under heaven where I was going till. I was too full of good liquor and good meat to be much worth it thinking, so I got my sheep on the road and a big bottle in my pouch and set off into the heather. I knew not what my purpose was, whether I thought to reach the shilling of Kinrath, or whether I expected some house of entertainment to spring up by the wayside. But my fool's mind was set on my purpose of getting some miles further in my journey, ere the coming of the darkness. For some time, I jogged happily on, with my sheep running well before me and my dogs trotting at my heels. We left the trees behind and struck out on a prod grassy path which bands the moor like a waist strap of a sword. It was most dreary and lonesome, with never a house in view, only bogs and grey hillsides and ill-looking waters. It was stony too, and this more than aught else caused my Dutch courage to fail me, for soon I fell wearied, since much whisky is bad travelling fare, and began to curse my folly. Had my pride no kept me back, I would have returned to Lucky Creeks, but I was like the devil for stiff neckness, and thought of nothing but to push on. I own that I was very well tired and quite spiritless when I first saw the house. I had scarce been an hour on the way, and the light was not quite gone, but still it was gain dark, and the place sprang somewhat suddenly on my sight. For looking a little to the left, I saw over a little strip of grass a big square dwelling with many outhouses, half farm and half pleasure house. This, I thought, was the very place I had been seeking, and made sure of finding. So whistling a gay tune, I drove my flock towards it. When I came to the gate of the court, I saw better of what sort was the building I had arrived at. There was a square yard with monstrous high walls, at the left of which was the main block of the house, and on the right what I took to be the buyers and stables. The place looked ancient, and the stone in many places was crumbling away, but the style was of yesterday, 
and in no way differing from that of a hundred steadings in the land. There were some kind of arms above the gateway and a bit of an iron stanchion, and when I had my sheep inside of it, I saw that the court was all grown up with green grass, and what seemed queer in that dusky half-light was the want of sound. There was no neighing of horses, nor rounding of key, nor clack of hens, but all as still as the top of Ben Kruken. It was warm and pleasant too, though the night was chill without. I had no sooner entered the place than a row of sheep pens caught my eye, fixed against the wall in front. This, I thought, mighty convenient, so I made all haste to put my beasts into them, and finding that there was a good supply of hay within, I left them easy on my mind, and turned about to look for the door of the house. To my wonder, when I found it, it was open wide to the wall. So, being confident with much whisky, I never thought to knock, but walked boldly in. There's some careless folk here, thinks to myself, and I much misdoubt if the man knows aught about farming. Maybe he'll just be a town's body taking the air in for the muirs. The place I entered upon was a hall, not like a muirland farmhouse, but more fine than I had ever seen. It was laid with a very fine carpet, all red and blue and gay colours, and in the corner in a fireplace a great fire crackled. There were chairs too, and a wealth of old rusty arms on the walls, and all manner of wigmalleries that folk think ornamental. But nobody was there. So I made for the staircase, which was at the further side, and went up it stoutly. I made scarce any noise, so thickly was it carpeted, and I will own it kind of terrified me to be walking in such a place. But when a man has drunk well, he is troubled not over muckle with modesty or fear. So I e'en stepped out and soon came to a landing where there was a door. Now thinks I. At last I have won to the habitable parts of the house. So laying my finger on the snake, I lifted it and entered. And there before me was the finest room in all the world. Indeed, I abate not a jot of the phrase, for I cannot think of anything finer. It was hung with braw pictures, and lined with big bookcases of oak, well filled with books and fine bindings. The furnishings seemed carved by a skilled hand, and the cushions and curtains were soft velvet. But the best thing was the table, which was covered with a clean white cloth and set with all kinds of good meat and good drink. The dishes were of silver and as bright as Loch Awe water in an April sun. Eh, but it was a braw braw sight for a drover. And there, at the far end, with a great bottle of wine before him, sat the master. He rose as I entered, 
and I saw him to be dressed in the pink of town fashion. A man of maybe fifty years, but hale and well-looking, with a peaked beard and trimmed moustache and thick eyebrows. His eyes were slanted a thought, which is a thing I hate in any man, but his whole appearance was pleasing. Uh, Mr. Stewart, he said courteously, looking at me. Is it Mr. Duncan Stewart that I will be indebted to for the honour of this visit? I stared at him blankly, for how did he ken my name? That is my name, I said. But who the devil tell you about it? Oh, my name is Stuart myself, says he, and all Stuarts should be well acquaint. True, said I, though I don't mind your face before, but now I am here, I think you have a most gallant place, Mr. Stuart. Well enough, but how have you come to it? We've few visitors. So I told them where I had come from and where I was going, and why I was forewandered at this time of night among the moors. He listened keenly, and when I had finished, he says, very friendly-like, then you'll bide all night and take supper with me. It would never be doing to let one of the clan go away without breaking bread. Sit you down, Mr. Duncan. I sat down gladly enough, though I own that at first I did not half like the whole business. There was something unchristian about the place, and for certain it was not seemly that the man's name should be the same as my own, and that it should be so well posted in my doings. But he seemed so well disposed that my misgivings soon vanished. So I seated myself at the table opposite my entertainer. There was a place laid ready for me, and beside the knife and fork, a long horn-handled spoon. I had never seen a spoon so long and queer, and I asked the man what it meant. Oh, says he, the broth in this house is very often hot, so we need a long spoon to sup it. It's a common thing enough, is it not? I could answer nothing to this, though it did not seem to me sense. I had an inkling of something I had heard about long spoons, which I thought was not good, but my wits were not clear, as I have told you already. A serving man brought me a great bowl of soup and set it before me. I had hardly plunged my spoon in it when Mr. Stewart cries out from the other end, now, Mr. Duncan, I call you to witness that you sit down for supper of your own accord. I've an ill name in these parts for compelling folk to take meat with me when they dinna want it. But you'll bear witness that you're willing. Yes, by God, I am that, I said for the savoury smell of the broth was rising to my nostrils. The other smiled, as if well pleased. I have tasted many soups, 
but I swear there was never one like that. It was as if all the good things in the world were mixed together. Whiskey and kale, and shortbread and cockaliki and honey and salmon. The taste of it was enough to make a body's heart loop with fair gratitude. The smell of it was like the spicy wands of Arabia that you read about in the Bible, and when you had taken a spoonful you felt as happy as if you had selt a hundred yows at twice the reasonable worth. Oh, it was a grand soup. What Stuarts did you say you come from? I asked my entertainer. Oh, he says, I'm connected with them all. At Hall Stuarts, Appen Stuarts, Rannock Stuarts, and I've had a leap of land thereaways. Whereabouts? says I, wondering. Is it at Blair at all? Or along by Tumbleside? Or west of the Lord of Rannock? Or in the Muir? Or in Mamore? In all the places you name, says he. God damn, says I. Then what for you do not abide there instead of in these stinking lawlands? At this he laughed softly to himself. Why, for maybe the same reason as yourself, Mr. Duncan, you know the proverb. A Stuart's a sib to the deal. I laughed loudly. Oh, you've been a wild one too, have you? Then you're not worse than myself. I ken the inside of every public in the Cowgate and the Canongate and there's no other drover on the road. My match at fetching and drinking and dicing. And I started on a long, shameless catalogue of my misdeeds. Mr. Stewart, meantime, listened with a satisfied smuck on his face. Yes, I've heard tell of you, Mr. Duncan, he says. But there's something more. You'll doubtless be hungry. And now there was set on the table a round of beef garnished with pot herbs, almost delicately fine to the taste. From a great cupboard were brought many bottles of wine, and in a massive silver bowl at the table's head were put whiskey and lemons and sugar. I did not know well what I drank but whatever it might be, it was the best ever brewed. It made you scarce feel the earth round about you, and you were so happy that you could scarce keep from singing. I would give much cellar to this day for the receipt. Now the wine made me talk, and I began to boast of my own great qualities, the things I had done and the things I was going to do. I was a drover just now, but it was not long that I would be being a drover. I had bought a flock of my own, and would sell it for a hundred pounds, no less. With that, I would buy a bigger one, until I had made money enough to stock a farm, and then I would leave the road and spend my days in peace, seeing to my land and living in good company. Was not my father, I cried, own cousin thrice removed to the Maclean's of Duart, and my mother's uncle's wife, a Rory of Balacroy? And I am a scholar too, said I. 
for I was a matter of two years at Embra College, and might have been roaring in the pulpit if I hadn't liked the drinking lassies too well. See, said I, I will prove it to you. And I rose from the table and went to one of the bookcases. There was all manner of books, Greek and Latin, poets and philosophers, but in the main, divinity. For there I saw Richard Baxter's call to the unconverted, and Thomas Boston of Ettrick's fourfold state, not to speak of the sermons of half a hundred old ministers, and the hind let loose, and many books of the covenanting folks. Faith, I says, you've a fine collection, Mr. What's-Your-Name, for the wine had made me free in my talk. There is many a minister and professor in the Kirk, I'll warrant, who has a less godly library. I begin to suspect you of piety, sir. Does it not behoove us, he answered in an unctuous voice, to mind the words of holy writ, that evil communications corrupt good manners and have an eye on our company? These are all the company I have, except one some stranger such as you, honours me with a visit. I had, meantime, been opening a book of plays, I think by the famous William Shakespeare, and here I broke into a loud laugh. Ha <laughs> ha, Mr Stuart, I says, there's a sentence I've lighted on which is hard on you. Listen, the devil can quote scripture to advantage. The other laughed long. He who wrote that was a shrewd man, he said. But I'll warrant if you'll open another volume, you'll find some quip on yourself. I did as I was bidden and picked up a white-backed book and opening it at random, read. There'd be many who spend their days in evil and wine-bibbing and lusting and cheating, who think to mend while yet there is time. But the opportunity is to them forever a wanting. And they go down open-mouthed into the great fire. Pah! I cried. Some wretched preaching book. I'll have none of them. Good wine will be better than bad theology. So I sat down once more at the table. You're a clever man, Mr. Duncan, he says, and a well-read one. I commend your spirit in breaking away from the banks of the Kirk and the College, though your father was so thrown against you. Enough of that, I said, though for don't know who telt you. I was angry to hear my father spoken of as though the grieving him was a thing to be proud of. Oh, as you please, he says. I was just going to say that I commended your spirit in sticking the knife into the man and the pleasance, the time you had hid for a month about the backs of Leith. How do you ken that? I asked hotly. You've heard more about me than ought to be repeated, let me tell you. Don't be angry, he said sweetly. I like you well for these things, 
and you mind the lassie in at all that was fond of you. You treated her well, did you not? I made no answer, being too much surprised at his knowledge of things that I thought none knew but myself. Oh yes, Mr. Duncan, I could tell you that you were doing today how you cheated Jock Gallower out of six pounds and sold a horse to the father of Haypath that was scarce fit to carry him home. And I know what you are meaning to do in the morn at Glesgar, and I wish you well of it. I think you must be the devil, I said blankly. The same, at your service, said he, still smiling. I looked at him in terror, and even as I looked, I kenned by something in my eyes and the twitch of his lips that he was speaking the truth. And what place is this, you? I stammered. Call me Mr. S, he says gently and enjoy your stay while you are here, and don't concern yourself about the lawing. The lawing? I cried in astonishment. And is this a house of public entertainment? To be sure, else how is a poor man to live? Name it, said I, and I will pay and be gone. Well, said he, I make it a habit to give a man his choice. In your case, it will be your wealth or your chances hereafter. In plain English, your flock or your my immortal soul, I gasped. Your soul, said Mr. S, bowing, though I think you call it by too flattering an adjective. You damned thief! I roared. You would entice a man into your accursed house and then strip him bare? Hold hard, said he. Don't let us spoil our good fellowship by incivilities, and mind you, I took you to witness to begin with that you sat down of your own accord. So you did, said I, and could say no more. Come, come, he says. Don't take it so bad. You may keep all your gear and yet part here in safety. You've but to sign your name, which is no hard task to a college-bred man, and go on living as you live just now to the end. And let me tell you, Mr. Duncan Stewart, that you should take it as a great obligement that I am willing your bit soul instead of fifty sheep. There's no many would value it so high. Maybe no, maybe no, I said sadly. But it's all I have. Do you know, see, that if I gave it up, there would be no chance left of mending? And I'm sure I do not want your company to all eternity. That's uncivil, he says. I was just about to say that we had a very pleasant evening. I sat back in my chair, very downhearted. I must leave this place as poor as a kirk mouse, 
and begin again with little but the clothes on my back. I was strongly tempted to sign the bit paper thing and have done with it all, but somehow I could not bring myself to do it. So at last, I says to him, Well, I've made up my mind. I'll give you my sheep. Sorry though I be to lose them, and I hope I may never come near this place again as long as I live. On the contrary, he said, I hope often to have the pleasure of your company, and seeing that you've paid well for your lodging, I hope you'll make the best of it. Don't be sparing on the drink. I looked hard at him for a second. You've an ill name and an ill trade, but you're no a bad sort yourself, and do you ken? I like you. I'm much obliged to you for the character, says he, and I'll take your hand on it. So I filled up my glass, and we set to, and such an evening I never mind of. We never get foo, but just fine, and a good temper, and very entertaining. The stories we telled and the jokes we cracked are still a kind of memory with me, though I could not come over one of them. And then, when I got sleepy, I was shown to the broadest bedroom, all hung with pictures and looking glasses, and with bedclothes of the finest linen and a coverlet of silk. I bade Mr. S. good night, and my head was scarce on the pillow ere I was sound asleep. When I awoke, the sun was just newly risen, and the frost of a September morning was on my clothes. I was lying among green braes, with nothing near me but crying warps and heathery hills, and my two dogs running round about and howling as they were mad. And that was A Journey of Little Profit, written by John Buchan in 1898. From myself, the fine upstanding hotelier known as Vic Mornington in the city-state of New Babbage. I hope you all have a wonderful and prosperous new year, and you're going to have, or have had, depending on when Mr. Tink releases us, a very, very happy Christmas. And I will see you all next year.